listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast has been leading podcast publications as the insider voice of the pharmacy industry. Explore the profession and business of pharmacy through audio. Join us at PharmacyPodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of your favorite podcast directories. Since 2010, Live Oak Bank has lent over $1 billion in pharmacy loans to more than 660 independent pharmacies. The Live Oak Bank team works exclusively with community pharmacists every day and understands what it takes to ensure pharmacies succeed to take care of their communities across the country. If you're interested in acquiring an existing pharmacy, purchasing real estate, or diversifying your business with additional offerings, Live Oak Bank is the right financing partner to help you reach your goals. We hope you'll reach out to talk to our pharmacy lending team. Visit us at liveoakbank.com forward slash pharmacy. That's liveoakbank.com forward slash pharmacy. Pharmacy Podcast Nation, welcome back. Live Oak Bank has done some amazing work in community pharmacy. And it's fun to have a expert in um, our inner circle of podcasts that that can give you information. You're you're driving, you're um, you're exercising, you're doing something. You you want good information. That's why we reach out to people that understand components of pharmacy business. So we were talking about uh, valuations we had uh, scotty and olin sykes talking with us in our first episode we are excited to come back and open up the concept of something that happens next and that is letter of intent in buying or selling a business and many other things that could be interconnected to that letter of intent Welcome back, Greco. It's great to have you back, and Thank I'm you, excited to look forward to, to listening to you speak with our special guest. Good. Yeah, I'm excited. Thank you very much for having us back. Um, round two, and uh, just for anybody that didn't listen to the first one, I encourage you, if you didn't, go back and listen. Um, but my name is Greco. I am the uh, senior lender and vice president uh, of the Pharmacy Vertical, help lead the Pharmacy Vertical here at Live Oak Bank. And uh, we've been committed to independent pharmacies, helping an individual um, purchase their first, maybe purchase their second or third, expand their business via working capital um, or expansion, or maybe even acquire the building that they've been in with commercial real estate. So we really are one-stop shop for for helping individuals um, with their financing needs and uh, very proud to have loaned. 1 billion uh, surpassed actually 1 billion with a B um, to the pharmacy space. So, so very proud of that. And we are committed to the independent pharmacy space. I'm excited to be here today. So our special guest, I want to, I want you to kind of give us an intro, but um, Tom Knapp is with us today. Uh, welcome Tom. Uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization. Thanks Todd. Uh Greco, Todd, happy to be here and uh, looking forward to having a conversation about letter of intent and a little bit about the transaction process. Mm-hmm. Like Todd said, my name is Tom Knapp. I'm an attorney uh, with Brown and Fortunato. We are a healthcare uh, boutique law firm based in, in Texas, but we represent clients all across the United States. Um, we do pharmacy all day, every day, everything from healthcare regulatory to buy side, sell side, you name it, we, we do it. Um, and it, you 
probably if you haven't come across me or Alfonso Zambrano, I know you've come across my partner, Jeff Beard, uh, but we're just happy to be here and, and uh, happy to be part of the live family here. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. Jeff, Jeff is um, for all those who may not know, Jeff has been participating um, with NCPA um, and Brown Unfortunato has as well for a long time. And, and just a great gentleman who's out there, very enthusiastic about helping independent pharmacies. And Tom, how long has Jeff been with the firm now? He's our, the firm's been around for 25 years. And I think Jeff's been with us uh, 20 of those 25. Oh, he's, yeah. he's the, uh, chair of the healthcare group and, um, you know, just a, a great asset to the firm and a great asset to independent pharmacies all yeah. across the country. Yeah. Well, you are too, because Tom, we're going to be talking about a lot of fun stuff today and you and I get our, uh, I'm lucky enough when, it, when a borrower does, um, choose to work with, um, uh, Brown and Fortunato and you and I get to team up and, and work on these transactions to make sure they're successful. But we're going to be talking about some pretty important stuff today. And uh, everybody, um, this is your chance to listen up here because we've got uh, a, a healthcare lawyer who has a lot of experience on and has seen a lot of things. We're going to be talking about some high-level points that I think are pretty critical. First and foremost, we're going to be talking about the letter of intent. What is it? Why do it? What does it provide the seller and buyer? When to do it? We're going to be having some follow-up questions and discussions with that. We're going to talk a lot about the transaction process, where the LOI and how it kicks off the transaction process, due diligence, purchase agreement, funding. Uh, and then we'll talk and finish up with some post-transaction stuff, reliance on legal post-transaction. And, and then, you know, what might, uh, what might happen, the good, the bad, and the ugly post-transaction. So, so let's kick it off here today. And um, why I think talking about the letter of intent is so important is because, you know, when we're dealing with an individual who might be looking to buy a business, or even when we're talking with a seller who has a individual and they want to introduce them to a live oak bank. And the first, in the first podcast with, with Sykes and company, we've talked a lot about, okay, well, how much is the transaction and what are you buying? right? Stock or asset. But then what comes in next is, I like to say memorializing the discussion that's been going on, maybe something that's been going on for months. And how do you do that? And that's what the letter of intent is. So Tom, let's kick it off here. What is a letter of intent? Yeah, great, great question, Greco. And, and a letter of intent is simply put, it's a transaction roadmap and it sets forth the rules of engagement between buyer and seller. Now it's, it's, it's drafted, prepared and signed very early on in the process. So mm -hmm. it's typically non-binding except for a few provisions that we can get into in a little bit, mm -hmm. but really it just sets the stage. You've got main uh, major, major deal points in there like purchase price parties, uh, structure of the deal. Sometimes you'll put, you know, pre-negotiated provisions in there. Like we require a non-compete post-closing on seller for five years, something like that. But it's a way to get in front of the seller and see whether or not you have a deal because mm -hmm. without spending a lot of money, right? Uh, because putting together a purchase agreements, it's a 20, 30 page 
yeah. document. It has yeah. a whole lot of legal jargon in it. And, and that, that can be, you know, time consuming, you got to pay an attorney and then you, you know, you're going down a whole process. The LOI is two to three pages. It's simple. And it really lets the parties know whether or not they're ready to transact. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and why do it? A lot of times people ask me all the time, well, do you need it to get the deal done? Do you need it for financing? And I say, no, we, we don't need it. It's not required, but it sure does help because you use the word. I love this. I love using this, uh, this um, uh, uh, image for people. It's the roadmap, right? It helps kick off the roadmap for individuals. And you got to have a roadmap because, um, and that, and that's why to do it, it memorializes that conversation that you've been having all these ideas and they get put in this nice salient form in a document and each individual signs it. And you're right. It's non-binding, but why do it? Because it helps kick it off. It helps kind of put pen to paper, the ideas down. And that's really critical. Um, what, what does it provide to a seller and buyer or, and Tom, if you, if, if you have anything to add on, on why do it, please do for, do so before we get into what it provides. Seller yeah, and buyer. Uh, I'll, I'll answer both those. So, so a good reason to do it is a lot of times people have misunderstanding when they're having conversations Yeah, and putting yep. it into paper really memorializes that. So you can see, okay, this is what I meant when I said such and such. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that, and, and you want to, you want to address those issues early on. You don't want to address those late later on. So once mm-hmm. you get kind of the big ticket items in there, you're good to go. Now, what it provides for the seller and what it provides for the buyer are, are different and, and the same for buyer. It lets buyer know, okay, I've got an interested seller. They're interested in, in the terms that I want. And we're going to go ahead and make all these terms non-binding except for a couple. One of those is going to be uh, a, a no-shop provision or an exclusivity provision. So in other words, buyer is going to lock up sellers so that seller can't go sell his pharmacy to somebody else for the next 90 days. That's really important for a buyer because they're about to spend some money on attorneys, on, right. you know, bank fees and bank accounting fees. fees. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. On a sell side, you want a confidentiality provision in there because Very you're about important. to give. Yeah. And, and the confidentiality provision is binding. Um, uh, most of the provisions are not, but confidentiality is one of those that is. Mm. And, and you want it in there because you don't want to show financials, give information about, you know, the secret sauce of how your pharmacy works and worry about a buyer taking that information and, and using it. And so it's a two-way street. Both sides should really want an LOI. Right. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. And I think another thing it does and uh, what it provides is also a timeline, right? I mean, oftentimes, don't, don't you think, Tom, that oftentimes in a letter of intent, it should kind of establish like, Hey, you've got this long to get your financing in order. You've got this long to do your due diligence. And then this is when we're going to either execute a purchase agreement or open escrow or close the transaction. So it's setting timelines, which, you know, are so critical. You got to set timelines. So, so I think that's another reason why uh, someone should do it and, and what it will provide. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and those timelines normally align with, 
the exclusivity period. So as a buyer, you're telling seller, okay, I can get this thing closed in 90 days. And so I'm going to give you, an, uh, you I'm going to lock you up for 90 days. Well, the seller says, okay, that's great. 90 days. But if, if you can't close in 90 days, then that exclusivity goes away. So there's a little bit of pressure on buyer to get things done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also helps seller understand, okay, this is probably when the deal is going to close. Do you I ever- will say, go ahead. A little sidebar, Greco. I will say, if you see uh, a 30 day timeline from mm-hmm. LOI, mm-hmm. that's probably uh, an, an over promise under deliver. Uh, I would say that most LOIs from signing LOI to closing are 60, 60 to 90 days. I would agree with that. Now, now, can you, um, can you break up those 90 days and to say, hey, listen, if you don't secure financing within the first 30 days, then the exclusivity is over, right? Because if you haven't proven to me that you're a qualified uh, individual, then 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 all bets are off. I mean, have you seen that where it'll kind of go in tranches or in stages? Oh, yeah. In the first 30 days? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, you can get really creative with the LOI. So if if, for example, you're unsure that buyer is 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 credit worthy, you might say, you've got to show me a commitment letter from your lender within 15 days after the LOI or all bets are off. And, and so that option's always on the table. Um, but I will say there's a little bit of trust in 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 all transactions, both Absolutely. both buyer and both seller have got to take a little bit of a leap of faith. And, and, and part of the LOI is you, you don't include everything you just right. include kind of the key points and each yeah. side's taking a little bit of a leap of faith yeah. there yeah yeah i would agree and and when do when do people in your opinion when do people or when should people do it when should a buyer and seller execute and enter into a letter of intent so it, it should be early on in the process um typically Typically, buyer has done enough diligence to understand what the valuation of seller is. So they're proposing a purchase price. Right. And it's just sometimes it's light financial diligence. It's not Mm -hmm. the full quality of earnings. Um, But I would say once the parties have agreed to major terms, price, structure, timing, you know, maybe whether sellers staying on post-closing as a consultant, some, just some key, key terms and buyers ready to take the next step to do real diligence, to get the process going with their lender, to, you know, start having attorneys do regulatory diligence and drafting documents. At that point, you should get an LOI in front of seller to know whether you've got a deal or not. Right. So, so let's talk about, and let's use that in the image of the roadmap here before we start to get into some follow-ups here. So individual has identified, uh, buyer and seller have had conversations. They've established that they, someone wants to sell, someone wants to buy. They've maybe established loosely the purchase price and loosely about what the structure might be. They've agreed maybe on some very loose terms about, well, I'll stay on and here's how it works. And an individual, the buyer, has determined, I like this pharmacy. I like this person. We seem like we get along in a line. Then let's start that LOI. 
would you agree, Tom? That's about about in the roadmap of it. Uh, uh, would you agree that's about time when to start it? Yeah, that's spot on, and you can tell you've done a bunch of these because because <laughs> yeah. uh, the the uh, you know you 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 really need to have a lot of those details ironed out. I mean, like I said, not not too many. We don't want to get into the weeds, but everything that you mentioned really lets you know whether or not you got a deal. And, and that's, that's what we're going for here with the LOI is, is we want to put forth something together that sets forth the roadmap, sets the stage right. and gives both parties confidence that the deal is going to, going to close. Right. Yeah. So what's too much and what's too broad? I mean, I've seen on both sides when I'm looking at, and, and, and mind you, everybody out there listening from the bank's perspective, you know, they're reading the letter of intent to kind of help them with the roadmap too, so that what they're proposing in underwriting or credit for approval aligns with what might be getting shown as far as the bank financials and things like that. And it's all reconciling and adding up, but I've seen everything from too much. I've seen 10 page LOIs, which personally I think is way too much. And then I've also seen two broader things where it's like one paragraph, right? So, so, so just quickly, what do you think, Tom, what is too much and what is too broad? What are just some key things that, that people should think about keeping out, but making sure that's in there? Yeah. So um, I'm reminded of a, the child's fable of three little bears, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's, it's too hot, too cold and just right on the, right. On the porridge. Yeah, and, and so ten, ten pages too much. One, one paragraph not enough. Um, but we do need things in there like purchase price, mm -hmm. uh, deal structure, uh, our exclusivity provision, confidentiality provision, non compete if that's important. Um, and then I like having some language saying we'll have customary reps and warranties and indemnification buyers, not assuming any liabilities, things like that. But I really don't think it's worth getting into the nitty gritty of, you know, what exactly is, does that mean? And, and how will that translate into the purchase mm -hmm. agreement? Because that's, that's what the purchase agreement for is right. for. And you really don't want to over law you're the LOI. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great time. I've heard you use that term very often. You know, we, we never want to over lawyer a transaction. And I think, that nothing rings more true and, and is apropos there where you don't want to over lawyer the letter of intent, just like, you know, um, uh, just like anything else. Um, but, but are breakup fees appropriate. And, and the reason why I ask that is because a lot of times, you know, in a letter of intent, for whatever reason, something might not pan out. And then depending on how far they've gone down the roadmap, they may have incurred some fees already to whoever it may be. Um, is that common and appropriate? And 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 first, let's talk. What are what are breakup fees? What do they mean? Yeah, so great question. A breakup fee is a provision that essentially says if we don't transact, one party will cover the other party's fees, and it, it could be. We'll cover all all the all your transaction fees. It could be we'll cover twenty thousand, ten thousand, or five thousand, or whatever you've negotiated. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, and it is a binding provision, so there's some teeth to it, right? Mm -hmm. So what's what's kind of funny about this is you typically have sellers asking for a breakup fee. So mm -hmm. a seller will say, 
you know, I, I'll, I'll do this, but I'll, you know, if, if we don't close or you can't close, then I want you to pay mine. That's actually not appropriate. What is, what's market or what's more common is a buyer asking for a breakup fee because the buyer is expending more costs. They, they've got uh, to do diligence on the company. They have legal fees, accounting fees, bank fees, yeah. um, other advisors, maybe consultant fee that, they've, that, they've, uh, that they're into to possibly a broker fee. Um, and, and so there's a lot more expenses on the buy side I will say though, I don't see them that often. Um, maybe, maybe two, one or two a year. Yeah. And, and it's, it's typically a pretty sophisticated buyer, um, and a seller that's ready to sell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I don't, I don't see the breakup fees very often. Um, but it's not to say that it's not appropriate or shouldn't be discussed because, I know I've, I've, we've done some transactions before where we've ordered a third party valuation on the business, or maybe there's even some commercial real estate involved in the transaction. And that buyer has already put out money towards the fees that are needed. And in between when the letter of intent has been executed and the purchase agreement is being drafted, you know, you're moving along the roadmap. And then all of a sudden something falls out and, and the buyer is responsible for that. So I do think that that's at least something. And, and this is the purpose of these podcasts is to help educate people on what they should be aware of that is market to be in there. And I, and I, I just think it's important to point out that, that that could happen. So be aware of it and, and, and how to put it in, how to include it in the letter. Of yeah. Yeah. Greco, that, that kind of reminds me, I'll, I'll, I'll tell a story without, giving away any specifics because I don't want to um, breach any confidentiality here, but right. uh, you and I, you and I have a deal, had a deal that mm-hmm. the, 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 the customer was a buyer mm-hmm. and, and they had already signed an LOI before coming to you and, and, and us and mm-hmm. seller didn't want to sign a new LOI. We had suggested it, but the LOI did, didn't have an exclusivity provision it also didn't have a, a breakup fee provision. Hmm. So what happened is we get in the transaction process about 90 days and, and the client had spent a good amount of money going through the process and seller was actually negotiating the deal with um, a, a big box uh, hmm. shop and sold the pharmacy out from under the buyer uh, buyer's nose and there was nothing the buyer could do about it because, because the LOI wasn't binding. It didn't have the language we wanted in it and it didn't have a breakup fee. So it's just a cautionary tale. And, and yeah. you, know, you, you may be thinking to yourself, ah, oh, you know, it's LOI. It's, it's not that important, but there really can be some serious consequences if you don't take the, the first initial step to, to, to lay the groundwork to go down the roadmap. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. And, and, and individuals, you know, we want to, and I, I'm going to steal this from, from, from Jeff. Um, and he always talks about the Kumbaya uh, stage and I don't think we ever want to lose that. Right. Because 
find something from somebody, particularly a business and an independent pharmacy, should be something that is enjoyable for all and should be successful. And we should look at all the positives that can come from it, but we shouldn't be obtuse from the potential negatives or risks that could be there. So you bring up a great point. That is a good cautionary tale. And I think that's something that people should keep in the back of their mind. And at least at the very minimum, talk about it, right? That's, that's, I think that's, that's, that's the point of calling it out. Yeah. And I'll just say it's a phrase that I use often. Good fences make good neighbors. Yeah. And, and so you, you got to set boundaries and, and when you set them at the outset with these very basic things, it makes the transaction process really smooth Yeah, because you're not arguing later on. You've already discussed it. It's not an issue and everyone's happy. Right. Yeah. All right. Um, so, so, so great talks about the, about the LOI, um, uh, the LOI then kicks off the transaction process. So, so we're in the roadmap, right. And, and we've, we've, um, we've got the LOI, we've got the letter of intent, it's been executed. Maybe the buyer and the seller have already kind of established the, the and, and got the bank financing. And so now the transaction process gets kicked off. And due diligence can happen at a lot of different stages, but let's talk a little bit about in the transaction process from the legal perspective, after the LOI, as, as you're working into the purchase agreement, let's talk about a little bit about the due diligence, what's involved in it, and, and what are some of the key points that people should be considering? Yeah, so diligence is really important. Um, and, and a lot of times we'll have clients that sign the LOI and they think, okay, ready for the purchase agreement, ready to sign. <laughs> it's all done. You know, I've got my loan. It's all done. We're good to go. Well, problem is, is you, you, you got to know what you're buying. And, and depending on structure will really impact your risk analysis. And, and so if you've got a, an asset deal, you're going to have a diligence process, but maybe it's not as in-depth as a stock deal. In a stock deal, your, your diligence is going to be really in-depth. But what we're asking for and what we're guarding against is we want to make sure that we have a clear understanding of chain of title, making sure that what you're buying is actually owned by the people that, that are selling it. It sounds really simplified, but you'd be surprised how many times we've found a rogue shareholder or you know that the assets weren't actually owned by this company, they're owned by a different company. I've seen it. So yep. chains, yep, chains of title, really important. Uh, regulatory issues, also really important. We want to make sure that there's no skeletons in the closet. We want to kick the tires and make sure that uh, they're not doing anything they shouldn't be doing. And we're not stepping into a company that has revenue based off of an anti-kickback scheme. That's a bad mm -hmm. thing. Um, not everything's a deal killer. Uh, sometimes you find something where you've got a license that's about to expire and you just ask seller to simply renew before closing so that you can operate post-closing using a power of attorney. Mm -hmm. And so really, I would say diligence needs to be focused in two parts. One is looking for issues. And the second is integration. That's will licenses transfer over, will contracts, how do we get this set up so that post-closing, day one of being new business owner, the revenue comes in exactly as it did uh, the last day of, of seller's ownership of the business. And, and that's, that's really, that's really should be your goal as a business owner. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, at Live Oak Bank, since we focus and specialize in pharmacy loans, we're asking a lot of common questions that would fall under a bucket of due diligence, right? I mean, we're looking at all these types of things, how the transaction is going to impact the change of ownership so that the business can continue to pay the debt and perform as it is today, right? But I always tell people all the time, you know, no one is a licensed lawyer until they're a licensed lawyer, right? And you should always seek the counsel of someone who really understands the space to do those additional layers of due diligence, because due diligence does come in different layers and it can come from different people. And you want to understand how the transaction is going to play out in the banking space, from the financing space, but then also from health and regulatory from a licensed a lawyer who really knows the space so that they can understand holistically what's going to occur. And, 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 and we're going to use this term stacking hands, you know, and it's very important as you're kicking off the transaction process after the LOI that the bank buyer seller and legal counsel are stacking hands to make sure that things are aligning as you're going through that diligence process. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and one thing that, I'll say is you want to have, you want to ask the right questions because I've, I've been in transactions where it was apparent from the beginning that, that buyer buyer and their attorney were, were asking too many questions and that, that can just be over, that can be overwhelming and you don't want to overwhelm your seller. You know, you, you really want to keep it simple because for the most part in the independent space, sellers have owned their businesses for years Right. Uh, they're, they're, they're entering retirement. You know, they're kind of done with paperwork. They're, they're really just ready to get a check and, and go off into the sunset. And that's fine. They've built a great business and, and, and that's their right to do that. So there's a really delicate balance. You don't want to overwhelm. So, so it's important to have, as Greco says, experts, you know, you want to have an expert in pharmacy space on the lending side, accounting side and legal side, because your experts are going to know how to ask the right questions and not overwhelm your seller. Right. And over and not overwhelm you too. You want to have a nice smooth process. That's, that's easy. Yep. Um, Purchase agreement. So let's say we've gone through due diligence and everybody feels good. You know, it is what it is presented to be and we feel really great. And now we're, continuing down the roadmap from LOI, letter of intent to from due diligence, financing, maybe it's already done. And now you're getting into purchase agreement where the bank, the buyer and the seller are stacking hands and going over purchase agreements and structuring them. Um, talk a little bit about what, what, what should go into that purchase agreement? Let's dig into that a little bit. Um, what what are some of your thoughts on that, Tom? Yeah, so purchase agreement. I mean, that's that's the main document. That's that's what governs the rules of engagement, so to speak. So, all your key terms from your LOI are going to be in there. Um, there may be some some uh, SBA guidelines that have to go in there in right. terms of of what you can and cannot do in the transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, one of those that comes to mind are post-closing adjustments with respect to the purchase price. That purchase price has got to be set at closing, can't do post-closing adjustments. Mm-hmm. And then from the legal side, it's really all about risk allocation. And, and from the buy side, 
you want to make sure that you're not assuming any liabilities, um, that, that, that if, if there are things like DIR fees, um, uh, or if there's any sort of recoupment or any sort of, um, you know, Medicare clawback that was during the time period of seller that you, you have language in there that says it's seller's obligation, unless you negotiate it otherwise. Um, and, and, and it's also important to have in the, in the purchase agreement, uh, pretty robust reps and warranties. So, that, which is essentially promises from seller to buyer about certain things about the business, whether it's, this is our list of contracts. This is our list of permits. These are all our employees. Uh, all of those things all the way to, we're not currently being sued by anybody. And so, yeah. you know, it, 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 it's informational in nature, but it, it, it really ties your diligence process to the purchase agreement. Yeah. And, and, and the bank is reviewing that. I mean, at Live Oak Bank, we help review that as well from the, both the buyer and seller side. And, and what are some things, Tom, in your experience that people have missed and maybe you've had to come in um, a little later on in the transaction, or maybe they've, they've, they've realized that, Hey, this is a little bigger than, than the, the current legal representation that I have. It's outside their expertise. What are some of the things that, that you've, you've had to come in and, and clean up and, and what did they miss? And what are some key points? Yeah. So, uh, uh, especially in the pharmacy space, it's so niche. Um, and, and, uh, each, each state's very different, but one of the things that, that repeatedly gets missed, uh, from non-pharmacy attorneys is, is how to handle licenses post-closing. And, and so some states allow the use of a power of attorney. Well, well, that power of attorney has got to be drafted. It has to be an exhibit to the purchase agreement and it has to conform with those states guidelines. Um, and, and, and so a lot of times you'll get a, a power of attorney, that's not either it's not up to snuff or it's not up to, to the regulations or it's, it, it just doesn't work. Um, and so we'll have to go in and clean that up. Sometimes power of attorney won't even be mentioned and they're just going to operate post-closing off of licenses without a power of attorney in place. And then sometimes they put a power of attorney in when you can't put a power of attorney in. And so when, when that happens, you've got to work with the board of pharmacy and time your clo closing up with the board of pharmacy approving the transaction. And so I would say, I would say where, where a pharmacy attorney is, is worth their weight in gold is, is on the regulatory piece, which Greco, as you know, if, if you mess up a license, you mess up a contract, yeah, <laughs> you're messing up revenue. It's big, yeah, it's big time. It is big time. It could definitely impact the future of the business and, um, you're you're right. I'll I'll add something else here um, before we get into something that I want to talk about, which is DIR fees and how they're handled. You know, another thing, another reason why it's important to have somebody that really understands the pharmacy space, but also understands the transaction process with the bank is a lot of times there can be things that are missed that the bank is going to require, whether you're doing SBA or non-SBA that the bank is going to require that may not be in the purchase contract or maybe part of the structure that is not going to be allowed. And that can derail things pretty significantly. I've seen that a lot of times. And, and, and Tom, just your point worth their weight in gold. 
Um, I really think you guys do a great job of understanding what's needed um, and, and making sure that, um, that everybody's stacking hands to get the transaction done and one little thing's not going to hold up everything. Yeah. And, and that's a good point. A lot of times, especially in the LOI, it's all those, all those unknowns right. aren't, aren't, they're not, they're unknowns. They're, right. they, you know, exactly that. And so, yeah, um, it, it's important to get all those in place. Uh, and, and we, we've certainly seen it where the parties are going down one path and for whatever reason, that's not the path they should have been going down. And, and it, it, it does have, have the potential to derail a deal. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's talk for a second here about DIR fees, you know, and in the first recording we had with Sykes and company, we touched a little bit on DIR fees, how it's handled as far as post-sale, but you know, a lot of the times that is going to go in, that's going to directly relate to how it was spelled out in the purchase agreement, if it was spelled out in the purchase agreement, right? So how do you consider DIR fees to be handled and what have you seen best practices? Yeah. So, so in, in asset transactions, uh, buyer is not assuming any liabilities. Mm -hmm. And so the norm is if a DIR fee relates to a pre-closing period time, time before the closing date, if the, you know, the, it, it relates back to billings done before the closing date. Mm-hmm. And those DIR fees are the responsibility of the seller. And mm-hmm. it, it's real easy to, to think about it in an asset deal because in an asset deal, buyer's got a new EIN. It's a new whole new company. So, so, so those, those fees shouldn't, shouldn't come over to buyer anyways. If they do, then it, it would be seller's responsibility. On an equity deal, there's a little bit more room to negotiate because buyer is actually buying the company. The EIN stays the same. So when the DIR fees come in post-closing that relate to pre-closing periods, the bill goes to to now buyer's company, which used to be seller's company. And so and there's talking, a question. You're talking about, about like in a stock purchase. When you said equity deal, just for purchase. listeners out there, yeah. like in a stock purchase. Sorry. Okay. Absolutely. That yeah, I apologize. That's a stock's the easy, easy, easy way to remember right. us, us attorneys say equity because <laughs> we're, you know, we just like to make things complicated, but so in, in a stock purchase where the tax ID stays the same, those DIR fees are going to the company and guess who owns the company now it's, it's buyer. So the question is, how do you handle those? And, and that is something that, that does get negotiated. I would say, Nine times out of 10, the negotiations land where if it's a pre-closing time period, it's seller's responsibility. Now, there are times where sellers are, you know, ahead of this issue and they negotiated in the LOI or they mm-hmm. tell buyers, I'm sorry, when we're done, we're done. You're assuming that. And then it's just up to buyer to figure out whether they want to swallow that or not. Um, but. When it is seller's responsibility, then the question becomes, okay, so what happens? I mean, you're, you, you've negotiated this. You've got language in there that says it's seller's responsibility. But, but I, buyer, am looking at this, this bill, and it's, you know, it's, it's a big number. So what do, what do we do? Um, there's some ways to navigate this. You can have an escrow account that's 
that's just a portion of the purchase price that's supposed to be used for these kinds of things. So an escrow is a great tool uh, to, to combat this. Um, and, and I will say, Greco, that that most, most sellers are, are okay giving up on this because they understand that it was during the time they owned the pharmacy. Yeah, yeah. Yep, I agree. And and it's just important to call it out and to know because we get a lot of questions. Hey, how are we going to handle the DIR fees? And you know, we are not we're not the lawyers, we're the bank there. And so we really can't dictate to people, but um it it is a very important part of the transaction that that does have to do a little bit with post sale, but also if it's not called out and discussed pre-sale, then you could be standing in a situation where you don't really know what to do and everybody's pointing fingers at one another, but you've got a pretty large um, number that you might be staring at. So um, I think it's important to call out. Um, so so let's now say as we're, we're going down the roadmap and, and we're, we're almost there, we see the end, right? And um, funding is in, is in sight. And this is really where I think the term stacking hands really comes into play. There are some things that I always try to tell people you should be really aware of. One is you should have an established timeline, right? The timeline to close and to fund should have already been set. The date should have been established. And from there, it should be aligning with maybe what some of the regulatory um, requirements of the state or federal or the business um, uh, is going to is going to require, right? And then it's going to also be aligned with the purchase agreement and getting it done and drafted and settled and finalized. Um, and then and then the funding comes, right? And this is really where I tell people, after you've had that established timeline, communication is so critical. Everybody's got to be on the same page so that we can reach the end goal. But Tom, why don't you talk a little bit about some of what you've discovered as best practices, but also things to watch out for, things that could derail that, that, that meeting of that timeline and, and, and where stacking hands sometimes it, it just isn't enough. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a good point. And, and I think, I think the key is working backwards from, from your, your target close date. And so um, I, I often tell buyers that, we can only control our side of the transaction process. And so with that in mind, buyers shouldn't be procrastinating, whether it's getting documents to lender or, or working through diligence. And, and they should make sure that their advisors are working um, at, at, a, at a good pace. And if you've, if you've got you know, Greco involved, they're going to be at a good pace. If you've got us involved, we'll be at a good pace as well. Uh, but what you can't control is seller, and and sometimes, uh, you know, either sellers, advisors are, are are slow, or they they don't know what they're doing, or they're not responsive, or sellers really not that motivated to sell. It, it yeah. can slow the process down a little bit, um, but but assuming everyone is is all oars in the same direction, rowing together then there shouldn't really be any problems, but, but kind of the one, I would say the one big unknown is how fast sellers going to go. And then if you come across third party issues, if there's a contract that needs to yeah. be signed, if you've got a yeah. landlord, you got to deal with, if you've got right. liens, you have to get 
you know, rid of before closing and you're dealing with a third party banker. Yep. Yep. That's no, it's all good points. I think you, I think you hit on a big one, right. Which is, um, you know, we're all, we I think we forget sometimes that, you know, there are people involved in this, right. The humans, I mean, they're just, you know, our neighbors and, 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 and to some it's the biggest transaction they may ever make outside of purchasing their home. Um, and for maybe someone on the sell side, you know, they've been in the business for 25, 30 years, and now they're not going to be. And so um, there can be those qualitative reasons, personally, uh, professionally, that might come in to, to change things. But you're right, Tom, that those those are some of those um, just X factors that that we can't really predict. But I always say to people, but if you have that signed letter of intent, if you have this memorialized discussion, it makes it so much easier to go back and be like, well, we had this agreed upon, like what's changed? And then if you have that, my personal opinion, people are going to be more apt to abide by it, even if they're getting the proverbial cold feet in a deal, right? Um, Would you agree with that? No, that's a great point. And I think, you know, touching on the emotional aspect of these deals and, and it it really can be some emotions with it. Yeah. And one, one, one thing that I, you know, hadn't really thought of until just now is I, I, I think the LOI helps sellers move on from the emotional attachment to their business. Okay. I've signed something saying I'm selling it. It's real now. Mm Mm-hmm. It's real. And so I think, I think that that can help put some of the emotions aside and, and, you know, let the parties know we're doing a business deal and and we're going to get there. Yeah. And, and the same for buyers too. I mean, you know, that lets them know, Hey, this is real because um, you know, I want to do this. And so people can start to plan appropriately. You're absolutely right. Um, So, so post transaction, the deal is done. We're all high-fiving each other. Everybody's happy and and everybody gets to move on to the next stage. We think that we've reached the end of the roadmap, um, but it's only this little part. And just like everything, you know, a new, a new map starts. And um, this is where post-transaction gets in. And what are some of the what are some of the the feedback that you can give people or some examples that people should be aware of of the rules of engagement? either from their legal side or from dealing with the seller and their presence in the business. And then finally, what if, and this is the, what if you find some fraud, waste and abuse, or you discover some things in the business that you didn't and weren't aware was there. And now, now, now you're having to deal with it. What are, what are some of the common best practices, but those also common mistakes? Yeah, so um, I think from a from a buy side, you really need to hone in on diligence, and and you really need to understand what the transition's going to look like, and and things like what are the store hours? Uh, how does the software system work? Uh, how do, how do how do I how do I get uh, revenue through the, the, the POS system. Um, you know, what's the landlord's phone number, all these really simple things that you would think, you know, I, I, I should know this are things that you find out 
in the in the diligence process and conversations that you have with seller on how the business runs. Now, mm-hmm. a lot a lot of our buyers are working in the pharmacy that they're mm-hmm. buying, so they yeah. they know a lot of this. Yeah, and yeah. And, and and they're they're set up for success. And post closing, they're telling seller, "Hey, hey, leave! I don't, I, I got this. You know, <laughs> to go, go on vacation." But yeah. sometimes we, we we have deals, and and it happens all the time where buyers and sellers are strangers, and and they met through uh, a broker or they met uh, just through the transaction process, mm-hmm. and so it might be wise in in that case to negotiate sellers staying on for six to 12 weeks post-closing in a consulting fashion so that you can learn more of these transition type issues. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I'll say, you know, keep, keep, keep your eyes open in, in terms of how the business is run and ask a lot of questions. That's what, that's what we as lawyers do. We just ask a bunch of questions and then lean on your advisors because um, you know, it's one of those things you only know what you know, and there's no dumb questions. And I've had clients ask me things that, that, um, were really good questions that I thought that they maybe knew the answer to and, and got it an answered in, in no time. Now that's the rosy side of a, of a post-closing. There are, you know, kind of a worst case scenario. If you come across fraud, waste and abuse, any mm-hmm. kickback issue, you you know, you realize post-closing that, seller was up to no good, um, then you really want to make sure that you had uh, strong indemnification language, strong uh, risk shifting language in your purchase agreement. And, you know, it's possible that you've got to reach out to your attorney and and make an indemnification claim post-closing. I certainly wouldn't carry on any of those practices. If you've discovered something that seller was doing, that's no good. Shouldn't carry it on. That's the worst thing you could do. Um, But there are there, like I said, at the very beginning, this is a little bit of a leap of faith, right? Both sides. There's a little bit of trust involved. And so trust your gut. If you, if you, if you think seller is a good person, they probably are a good person. And and I'd say 99 out of a hundred transactions go well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think just some, some key points too, you know, um, something that's kind of unique about our process is we've got a team of analysts who are working with our buyers, our customers, post-transaction benchmarking, what their um, metrics look like from, from numbers side, from when they took over the business to what it was before talking to them about some of these qualitative factors, like you're talking about, did the transaction go as planned and did everything end up as is, but, um, you know, there's also the thing with um, the employees uh, and, and, and how that's handled. Post-sale, what are some of the, the good, bad, and the ugly you've seen with employees? And what are some things people should be thinking about? Because just one thing, you know, a lot of times the, the actual sale may not be announced to the staff until a week before maybe not even until after it's already happened because that's sellers or buyers preference. Um, but what are some of the, what, what's some of the good, bad, and ugly you've seen as relates to the staff post-sale? Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I'm glad you mentioned it, Greco. Um, with respect to staff, it, it, it could be, you're right, that they don't know about the transaction until post-closing. And so mm-hmm. 
you know, the good best case scenario, they say, great, we didn't like yeah. the seller anyways, and we're excited <laughs> about this new buyer. Uh, and, and nobody leaves. Uh, worst case scenario, the staff leaves, they go compete, they start their own pharmacy. And, and you can't enforce non-competes against those employees unless they already had one in place with seller and you're doing a stock transaction. So it's a good point. And, and, and um, uh, while we're on it, I'll, I'll cover it. It might be a good idea pre-closing to identify key employees mm-hmm. and require as a condition to close that they sign employment agreements and non-competes with you post-closing so that there are no issues because we've certainly seen it where, you know, a pick uh, thought that they were going to get the pharmacy handed to them. They leave buyers left without a pick. Uh, They're scrambling to try to get one. And it's just not a, not a good situation or, you know, maybe a sales rep leaves and they're a really good employee and they do a great job and they're just fantastic. And, 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 and they, they decide, you know what, I, I don't want to go work for, for buyer. And then, you know, that, that can impact revenue. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of things to consider post sale. You hope that all those things are not going to occur. Like you just talked about with individuals leaving, but you know, just like anything, you have to hope for the best plan for the worst. And again, just knowing that it's a possibility facilitate the dialogue with somebody and talk about it a little bit. Um, well, Tom, this has been great. I mean, just for all the listeners out there, we've covered topics ranging from the letter of intent. What is it? Why do it? What should be in it? What's too much? What's too little? All the little things to consider with that. Um, we've talked a lot about how that kicks off the transaction process, due diligence, uh, uh, purchase agreement structure, stacking hands, timing on the funding and closing so that you can successfully close a transaction. And then also some of the things to look out for post-transaction. Um, you know, as we round out our time here, Tom, anything that you think is important to talk about or anything that we might've missed that the listeners should be aware of? You know, I, I would just say taking a step back, and and we've we've covered this in terms of the importance of the transaction. Mm-hmm. It's important to take a deep breath and 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 get your team in place and trust your advisors. Ask a lot of questions um, and understand that your team has done this time and time again. Kind of lean on them so that you can have as stress free of a process as possible yeah. to get to the real the real fun, which is owning the pharmacy. Yeah. Or if you're on the sell side, enjoying a, a, a cold beverage on a beach. <laughs> oh, and everybody wants that. Um, yeah, I agree. And, and, and I'll, I'll leave it with, you know, at Live Oak Bank, we really pride ourselves at education and answering these questions and treating every customer like the only one. And uh, because um, we do that and, and we're non-commissioned, um, we're really keeping the best interest of both parties in mind. So we're making sure that uh, we're going to do that. So if you have questions, be sure to reach out to us and we can talk about this. Anything legally related, happy to pass on Tom's information as well. And Todd, I know uh, Tom's info will probably be there. And if not, he can he can provide it. But um, 
Tom, this has been great. I, I appreciate your your help as always, and your and your and your um, uh, knowledge in the space is 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 valued. Todd, thank you very much for letting us come on and, and talk to your listeners about this very important subject. And um, thanks everybody out there. Tom, thank you so much for being our special guest. It was incredibly informative, very interesting. For the listeners, please look in the show notes in order to have access to uh, Greco and Tom and, and just connecting with them if you have any follow-up questions. And um, Live Oak Bank, thank you so much for dedicating um, this time to, to bring us some important information for pharmacy business, business owners. Thank you.